farewells are no fun. Since my wife and her mom live 2,500 miles apart, I've witnessed my share of teary farewells. It doesn't matter the length of the visit. When the time comes to say goodbye, there's a sadness. It's tough to say goodbye to someone that you love. Perhaps you can recall a painful farewell. Yet there has never been a more heartbreaking, gut-wrenching, tear-inducing goodbye than the one that we'll study tonight. For 853 years, almost a millennium, the glory of God dwelt among His people Israel. God's glory, the kabod, the shekinah, rested in the temple. The visible manifestation of God's presence hovered over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. But the day came when that glory departed. It was a grim, fateful, devastating day for God and for His people. God said goodbye. Because of Israel's idolatry, the glory cloud moved slowly, reluctantly, lingeringly, yet decisively. The glory moved from the temple's inner sanctum, outside the city, ultimately to atop the Mount of Olives, even ascending back to heaven. God lifted His presence, and thus there was no more protection. And this set the stage for the invasion that was to come. Just six years later, the Babylonians destroyed the city and burned the temple. You remember when the infant nation left Egypt, we're told in Exodus chapter 13, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night, he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. This fiery cloud was a tangible token of God's presence among His people. It was a combination of wind and fire, both biblical symbols of the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. It means weighty. God's glory is the aura surrounding His presence. It's the divine fallout. It was also called the Shekinah, which means the glory of glories. In the wilderness, this glory cloud apparently covered the entire camp and offered the people supernatural protection. Psalm 105 verse 39 reads, He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. The Sinai Peninsula is one of the harshest, most volatile ecosystems on earth. The daytime temperatures can soar to 120 degrees. At night, it drops near freezing. In addition, there's no shade, there's no food, there's no protection from sudden winds and devastating sandstorms. A conservative estimate of the size of the nation of Israel when they exited Egypt was 2 million. That's about two-thirds the population of metro Atlanta. The nation's camp had to have covered a number of square miles. Apparently, the Shekinah acted as a huge tent over God's people. Picture a mushroom cloud. Its epicenter is the Holy of Holies. Its canopy spreads out and protects the entire camp. Apparently, once the people settled into the land of Canaan, the fiery cloud was limited to the temple proper. In Leviticus chapter 16, God instructs the high priest to bring into the Holy of Holies the sacrifice. And then he says, For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. When the mercy seat and the sacred ark were captured in battle by the Philistines, it so upset the pregnant granddaughter of the high priest, it threw her into labor. And she named her son Ichabod, which means no glory. In 1 Samuel 4, she said, For the glory has departed from Israel, for the, God, the ark of God has been captured. The ark and its lid, or the mercy seat, were home for God's glory. Later, when Solomon dedicates the temple, the glory of God is so thick that the priest can no longer stand and function. It's the heaviness of God is so real to the priests. 
Solomon says at that moment in 2 Chronicles 6, The Lord said He would dwell in the dark cloud, but I have built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell forever. Solomon expected for that glory cloud to remain in his temple forever, and yet it didn't. It didn't rest in the temple forever. The glory cloud would only reside there for about three centuries. And Ezekiel was on hand to report the glory's departure. He describes the glory's exodus in tonight's chapters, chapters 8 through 11. Chapter 8 and 11 tell us why the glory departed. Chapters 9 and 10 tell us how. Chapter 8 begins, And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, on our calendar, September 17th, 592 B.C. It had been 13 years since the first exiles were brought to Babylon, seven years since Ezekiel had taken, been taken captive and brought to Babylon. He says, As I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Ezekiel had been warning the exiles that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. But since they were on the other side of Mesopotamia, they wondered why. Well, God shows them why. He does so by transporting Ezekiel to Jerusalem to show him firsthand how wicked the Jews had become. As a matter of fact, God's throne chariot revs up in verse 2. Then I looked, and there was a likeness, like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward, fire. And from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. This description fits the person Ezekiel saw previously in chapter 1, verse 27. There sitting on God's throne chariot was a person with the appearance of a man. The only person allowed to sit on the throne of God who appears as a man is his son, Jesus Christ. And here's another pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Verse 3, Ezekiel tells us what happened to him. He stretched out the form of a hand, and he took me by a lock of my hair. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. God put Ezekiel in a hairlock. He lifted him up off the ground, and he whisked him away 600 miles from Babel to the city of Jerusalem. Now, there's three explanations as to what actually happened. First, he may have been bodily transported. Second, this all could have just happened in a vision. Or third, he could have been literally taken away, but transported spiritually, not physically. In other words, his body stayed in Babylon while his spirit was transported to Jerusalem. You remember, this is similar to what happened to the Apostle Paul when he was caught up to the third heaven. You remember he told the Corinthians that he didn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body. Ultimately, I'm not sure it matters. What's important is what he saw, not how it happened. Verse 4 tells us, And behold, the glory of God, the God of Israel, was there like the vision I saw in the plain. Ezekiel is referring to the vision that he saw back in chapter 1, where the cherubs and their wings were under God's throne, revving up the throne, moving the throne. You know, you might have a mobile phone, but God has a mobile throne. It's angel-powered. And here God takes Ezekiel back to Jerusalem. He's going to take him on a temple tour. He's going to show him how wicked the people have become, how deserving they were of judgment. It was sort of like a tour of homes. Welcome to the lifestyles of the rank and wicked. And then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. And so I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. Here at the heart of God's temple, in the very midst of the sacred place, the people had erected an idol. God calls it the image of jealousy that provokes to jealousy. Realize God 
desires our allegiance. He wants our love. And it hurts him when we redirect it elsewhere. God says in Exodus chapter 34, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God loves us unreservedly, wholeheartedly, and He expects the same kind of love from His people. In other words, God doesn't tolerate being second fiddle. You should know that. He refuses to share His people's affections. He wants to be our loudest yearning and our deepest longing. Think of it this way. God owns no timeshares. Everything God owns, He holds exclusive rights. And this is what He expects from us. If we're in Christ, we've been bought at a price. And God gets angry when what He owns is given to someone else. This happens when people follow idols. When the Hebrews of old worship carved images. Or when Christians today allow their career or their house or their hobbies to crowd God out of their lives. It becomes idolatry. Around the altar of your life are there images that provoke God to jealousy? Is there anything in your life that gives God a reason to question your love for Him? Well, in verse 6, God tells Ezekiel, Furthermore, He said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again, you shall see greater abominations. God's people have run him out of his own house. A jealous God can no more coexist with great abominations than can a faithful spouse live with an adulterer or an adulteress. And God is telling Ezekiel what he's seen is just the tip of the iceberg. God has more abominations to show him. And so he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. God shows Ezekiel a secret chamber in the temple precincts. So I went in and saw, and, there, and he couldn't believe it, I'm sure. Every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. And in their midst stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. The elders, no less, men who were supposed to help God lead his people, were serving as priests to these idols. Verse 12, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his idols? For they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. This was shocking. Israel, Israel's elders were secretly worshiping idols. They were offering sacrifices to the beasts of the field rather than to the God of heaven. As Paul observed in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, the Gentile world has worshipped the creature rather than the creator. This is what we see happening today. And yet these idolaters weren't Gentiles. They were Jews. And not just Jews, God's people, but they were the elders of the Jews. Even Jazaniah was guilty. This Jazaniah was the son of Shaphan. Shaphan was a leader in King Josiah's revival some 40 years earlier. Here was a man with a godly heritage, with a priestly posi position, but he was involved with idols. And I'm sure on the surface, these elders were probably claiming to serve the Lord, but in the secret chambers, they were offering sacrifices to false gods. And here's the question for us. What's going on in your secret chambers? What's going on in the secret places of your heart? Are we guilty of secret sins? What do we watch after our kids go to bed at night? What do we do with our free time when we're on vacation or when we're out of town and no one knows? 
How do we live when no one else is looking? Even if our hands are clean, what goes on in the secret chambers of our mind, this matters to God. What kind of lust do we nurture there? If Jesus is Lord, there'll be no secrets. God directs Ezekiel back to his tour, verse 13. And he said to me, turn again, and you shall see greater abominations that they are doing. And so he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was the Babylonian fertility goddess. Supposedly, Tammuz was the supernatural offspring of the evil Nimrod and his wife, Semiramis. His evil worship was accompanied by lust and sexual orgies. This was despicable, and it was going on in the house of God. Verse 15, then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. And so he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. Ezekiel sees in the midst of the holy place, near the altar of incense, a hellish crime being committed. 25 men, probably one of each of the 24 priestly divisions plus the high priest were on their knees worshiping the rising sun in the eastern sky. Worshiping the sun god. Which means that their backs were to the temple and to the one true God. How's that for poetic justice? And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. Now, we're not really sure what the, that expression means. It could be a ceremonial, gesture, a ceremonial gesture involved in nature worship perhaps praying into a bouquet of flowers or putting a branch to the nose. Or it could just be a way of saying they thumbed their nose at God. They ignored the Lord. Well, whatever it was, God replies with a stern rebuke. Therefore, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. In other words, these people were past the point of repentance. God is saying, they can cry to me all they like, but I've already decided to punish their idolatry, these great abominations. Chapter 9. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Let those who have charge over this city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now often in the scripture, angels are referred to as men, for they usually materialize in human form. And here we see seven angels... Seven angels with an axe to grind, literally. We know these are guardian angels, for it says they have charge over the city. Six of these angels have battle axes. The seventh angel is ready to write. He has an inkhorn on his side, or a pouch worn by a scribe, where he would keep his pen and ink. In the book of Revelation, seven angels also play a prominent role. You remember angels... Seven angels pour out seven bowls of judgment. They also blow seven trumpets of judgment. In both instances, the seven angels mete out justice. This is the same case. These angels are going to be God's, they're going to carry out God's fury and they're going to bring about his judgment. Verse 3 Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark 
on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. In other words, everyone whose heart was right with God, who grieved over the city's idolatry, they received a mark on their foreheads. This protected them from God's judgment against Jerusalem. You remember, this also happens in Revelation. In chapter 7, at the end of time, 144,000 witnesses will receive a seal in their foreheads. And it's this seal that protects the righteous from the dire, dreadful plagues that occur during the Great Tribulation. You know, apparently Satan isn't very creative, for the mark the Antichrist will use to blackmail the world into worshiping him will also be a mark on the forehead. He counterfeits how God marks his people, except he uses a number, 666. It's interesting, the word mark here is the Hebrew letter ta. It's the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and it's in the shape of a T or a cross. Perhaps the mark that God places on the foreheads of the 144,000, and, by the way, the citizens in the New Jerusalem, perhaps it's Calvary's cross. Verse 5 tells us, To the others, that is, the angels with the battle axes, He said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Oh my. Notice judgment always begins at the house of God. This is what Peter wrote to the church. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. God will judge a wicked world. Don't, don't make any mistake about it. In His fury, God will judge. But before God judges a lost world, He first purifies the church. He always gets His own house in order first. And then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and they killed in the city. In Ezekiel chapter 7 verse 9, God had revealed to Ezekiel an interesting name for himself. He called himself Jehovah Naka, which means the God who strikes. That's an interesting name for God. We know he's Jehovah Jireh. He's the God who provides. We know He's Jehovah Rapha. He's the God who heals. We know He's Jehovah Shalom. He's the God of peace. But you need to understand, He is also the God who strikes. The God of grace is also the God of fury. Understand, we we moderns, we kind of get squeamish when it comes to this idea of judgment, of punishment. God doesn't. God God doesn't get squeamish. He doesn't faint at the sight of blood. He sees to it that justice is served and that sin is punished. He has no problem judging the wicked when it's time. And so it was that while they were killing them, I mean, as the angels with the battle axes go to work, I, that is Ezekiel, was left alone. and, And I fell on my face and I cried out and said, Ah, Lord God! Will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? I mean, Ezekiel is stunned. He wonders how far God will go. And then he said to me, here God justifies the severity of his actions. He said, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. And the land is full of bloodshed. And the city full of perversity. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. Actually, the bloodshed that God exacts is to stop the bloodshed that the people were exacting upon each other. Verse 10, And as for me also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. And just then, 
the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn at his side, he reported back and said, I have done as you have commanded me. Well, chapter 10. And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Again, this is the vision that Ezekiel saw in chapter 1. He saw something like a colossal fireball. It turned out to be God's throne chariot. It's set on top of wheels, actually wheels within the wheels. They look like gyroscopes. It was propelled by the wings of cherubim. You've heard of horsepower? Well, God's chariot runs on angel power. And then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels, under the cherub. Fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. Fiery coals are another idiom for God's judgment. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. And then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and passed over the threshold of the temple. Now this is flabbergasting. This is stunning. Remember, God's glory had remained stationary for 853 years. Since Israel came out of Egypt, the glory had rested over the Ark of the Covenant. Now the kabod, the glory, the Shekinah, begins to move. Suddenly the glory cloud rises up from the mercy seat and moves to the threshold of the Holy of Holies, which is the door that leads into the outer courts. The glory of God is beginning its slow, painful evacuation. And the house was filled with glory, or filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. This is so interesting. For when you read the New Testament, the book of Hebrews to be exact, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we're told... God has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. And notice what Jesus is called, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. Notice the writer calls Jesus the brightness of the Lord's glory. He makes a direct reference back to Ezekiel. You see, as a flash of a camera is to the light in this room, so is Jesus to the glory of God. He is the full blaze. He is the concentration of God's glory. And this is what Ezekiel saw there in the Holy of Holies, in the temple in Jerusalem. I believe the glory that resided in the temple all of those years was really the presence of the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. If that's so, imagine day in, day out, for over eight centuries, Jesus was in that temple watching those animal sacrifices that would foreshadow the ultimate sacrifice of his own body. And notice what happens next. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. This is sad news for the sound of the angel's wings was an indication that God's throne chariot was cranking up again. The glory of God is about to move again. Verse 6. Then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, that he went in and stood beside the wheels. And the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim, and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub and another wheel by each other cherub. The wheels appeared to have the color of beryl stone. The color beryl is a sea green. As for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went, 
and their whole body with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that the four had were full of eyes all around. Again, this is what he saw in chapter 1. Apparently, this throne is omnidirectional. It has no turning radius. It spins on a dime. It's like those new suitcases with the swivel wheels. Hoping to get one of those one of these days. When we discussed God's throne chariot in chapter 1, we delved into the possibility that what people have referred to as UFO sightings might be nothing more than the appearance of demons or fallen cherubim. You see, there are great similarities here between how these cherubim behave and how these UFO sightings are reported. There's great mobility. Some of the appearances look exactly alike. Some UFO aficionados have said that Ezekiel must have seen an alien aircraft. But remember, Ezekiel didn't see an unidentified flying object. He clearly identified what he saw. He said he saw God's throne chariot and its angels underneath it. Could it be that the UFO sightings that people are suggesting are actually the activity of fallen cherubs or demons? Verse 13 as for the wheels, they were called in my hearing, wheel. It's kind of hard to separate the wheels and the cherubs. It was a cherub here, but it was called a wheel. God's throne chariot actually moved on the angel's wings. Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face, the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. There's one difference here between here and chapter 1. Here the face of the cherub takes the place of the face of the ox. Could it be that the two look similar? You know, the classical depiction of a cherub's face with rosy, plump little cheeks and a pug nose may actually be wrong. A real cherub might more accurately resemble an ox, at least one of his faces. Verse 15, And the cherubim were lifted up, This was the living creature I saw by the river Chabar. He's referring back to chapter 1. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still. And when one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up. For the spirit of the living creature was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. Here the Shekinah glory is hitching a ride on God's throne chariot and it's being empowered by these angels. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. Notice the glory of God is evacuating. The glory is moving. From the Ark of the Covenant to the threshold of the temple, now out to the east gate, God is slowly and painfully saying His goodbye. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chabar, and I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces and each one had four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings, And the likeness of their faces were the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Chabar, their appearance and their persons. They each went straight forward. Now remember, Solomon's temple, in essence, had three courts. There was the Holy of Holies. Then there was the holy place, the second uh, level of the inner sanctum. And then there was an outer court, which included the altar on which the sacrifices were offered. God's glory has now left the inner court, or the Holy of Holies. It has moved past the threshold, through the outer court, and now it's at the east gate, the gate to both the temple and the city. For eight and a half centuries, God's glory had filled this temple. Now it's moving from the ark to the temple's threshold to now the city's gate. In chapter 11, the Shekinah will move again 
to the top of the mountain outside Jerusalem, and from there it will ascend back to heaven. Today, a temple no longer stands in Jerusalem. God is no longer dwelling in temples made with human hands. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But like in the temple of old, God does still, He still doesn't tolerate spiritual infidelity. If we allow other loves and secret sins to rival our devotion to God, we'll grieve His Holy Spirit and His glory will leave us. He'll remove His glory, His anointing from our lives and no longer use us. And it begins as it did in the temple, in the inner court. You see, God evacuates from a person's private life. God gets tired of being neglected or being relegated to second place. He lingers at the threshold. He doesn't want to leave. He hopes for repentance. And the public doesn't know what's happening. On the outside of the man's life, all is well. His ministry's still blessed. Folks are getting saved. God is still using this fellow for a season. But in his inner life, something sad has happened. God has removed his glory, his anointing. Eventually, the glory exits the outer court. The man's sin is seen. He's exposed for his compromise. But again, it happens from the inside out. Now, chapter 11. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faces eastward. And there at the door of the gate were 25 men, among whom I saw Jazaniah, the son of Azur. That's a different Jazaniah. And Pelatiah, the son of Beniah, princes of the people. Now, these were not the 25 priests that we saw in chapter 8. These are princes. These are secular leaders. But they're just as guilty. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in this city, who say the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. Now, you see, Jeremiah had been preaching to the exiles who had settled in Babylon to, to go ahead, build homes, Go ahead, sign up for a mortgage. You're not going back anytime soon. The captivity is going to last for 70 years. But the false prophets in Jerusalem, they were saying just the opposite. They were telling the exiles, no, you're going to come back real soon. Jerusalem is going to be fine. As a matter of fact, Jerusalem is the pot and you're the stew. You belong in the pot as the meat belongs in the pot. So these Jews belong back in Jerusalem. That's not what Ezekiel was saying. That's what the false prophets were saying. Ezekiel has a different message. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord. Thus you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. Notice that. God has the ability to read our minds. I was counseling with a couple one time and they were revealing some of their squabbles and some of the things that were going on in their relationship. And then the guy looks at me and he says, Pastor Sandy, please don't tell God about this. God knows. God can read our minds. God sees all things. This is why there are no secrets before God. Verse 6, For you have multiplied your slain in this city. And you have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in its midst, they are the meat. And this city is the cauldron, but I shall bring you out of the midst of it. The meat in the pot will be the slain in Jerusalem. Those who stay in Jerusalem are not the stew. They're in a stew. God is about to judge the Jewish city. Those that are safe are those that are back in Babylon. He says, you have feared the sword and I will bring a sword upon you, says the Lord. And I will bring you out of its midst and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments on you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And this is exactly how it all played out. The Babylonian general, Nebuchadnezzar, he set up his field headquarters in the town of Riblah, which was on the border 
between Syria and Israel. It was there that he judged King Zedekiah. Remember, he killed his sons and he plucked out his eyes with a hot poker. Verse 11, The city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in its midst. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor executed my judgments, but have done according to the customs of the Gentiles, which are all around you. And now it happened while I was prophesying that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, he died. Then I fell on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? See, it's one thing to hear of God's judgment, to hear about the death of your countrymen, but it's another to see it with your own eyes. And while Ezekiel's speaking, two guys drop dead. Verse 14, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. Jews like Ezekiel had already been taken to Babylon. They were looked down on by those who remained in Jerusalem. You know, they they felt like God had chosen them to possess the land. Yet God tells Ezekiel, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. God had not forsaken the exiled Jews. He would still be with them. Perhaps the biggest tragedy for a faithful Jew living back in Babylon in exile was their separation from the temple. For suddenly, they had nowhere to go to worship God or to study the Scriptures. And as a substitute, it was in Babylon that the Jews first built their synagogues or their assemblies. Technically, Jews are supposed to go to Jerusalem to worship. But because they've been scattered around the world, they build synagogues, which becomes a substitute. It's interesting, in the Middle Ages, the word the Jews used for synagogue literally meant little sanctuary. It was a reference to this promise to Ezekiel. But that wasn't the idea here, not building of synagogues. God is saying to Ezekiel that he himself will be their place of worship. That the Jews in exile, he will be to them a little temple or a little sanctuary. He'll be present for them. They'll be able to go to him directly. He won't forsake them even when they're away from their homeland and away from their temple. Sort of like Jesus told his disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here God is promising his abiding presence with his people Israel. And God has a new covenant for these people. Even in the midst of their death throes, he gives them hope for their future. Verse 17, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Now remember the new covenant that God had given to Jeremiah. It contained three clauses, or three ingredients. First, there was to be a regathering to the land. Then there was to be a regeneration of their hearts. Third, there was to be a reestablishment of their kingdom. Here he promises the fulfillment of the first two clauses of the covenant. After 70 years, God will reassemble the Jews to the land. Israel will once again be a Jewish homeland. This occurred exactly as God had predicted. And they will go there and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from from there. When the Jews returned to Israel, they were a different people. They went throughout the land. They cast out their idols that they had worshipped. You know, the Babylonian captivity did cure the Jews of their idolatry. Even today, the Jews refused to worship idols. It was a cure, but it wasn't a cure-all. Sin still lurked in the hearts of these people. Self-righteousness and legalism took the place of idolatry. When you read the New Testament, you see what had become of the Jews in Jesus' day. They had cleared their land of idols, 
but they didn't clear their hearts of sin. And so, God is going to come to their rescue with a new covenant. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. What a beautiful promise. Here, an Old Testament prophet describes a New Testament experience. Now remember the the term, the New Testament. It's really just another name for New Covenant. And the second clause of the New Covenant is a new heart. This is what Jesus tried to explain to Nicodemus when he said, you must be born again. What Ezekiel has been promised here is a spiritual birth. God changes us. Not by rehabilitating the old nature, but providing us a new nature, a new heart, a new love, a new set of desires, new tendencies. You see, the new birth isn't a reformation. It's a regeneration. A miracle occurs in a person who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus. God cuts out that stony heart, that nature that's hard and resistant to God. And he replaces it with a heart of flesh. What's more like a spongy heart. That's soft toward God. That's compliant. Under the new covenant, the Jews had tried, under the old covenant, I'm sorry, the Jews had tried to clean up their act. They had tried to reform the old nature, but to no avail. It would be like asking me to sing. (laughs) You've never heard me sing. I mean, I'm tone deaf. It doesn't matter how hard I try. I'm not going to be good enough. What I need is an ear for music. What I need is a new set of vocal cords. And under the new covenant, this is God's answer to sin. Rather than just command us to try harder, God gives us a new ear in essence, a new voice so that we can sing on key. This is what Jesus paid for on the cross. At his last supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of what? Of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. You See, having this new nature doesn't always mean that I'll hit every note, but at least now I can hear the music. I know what it's supposed to sound like. My heart is in tune. The spirit is willing. Even at times, the flesh is weak. We'll talk a lot more about the new covenant when we get to Ezekiel. Chapter 36, verse 21, But as for those whose hearts follow the desire of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. Those who aren't willing to receive the new birth, their sin will be judged. And the glory cloud makes one more move. And so the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, And the glory of of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. And if you're familiar with the geography of Jerusalem, you realize that just beyond the east gate, there is a valley, the Kidron Valley, and there is a mountain on the other side of that valley. God's glory now moves to that mountain. It's called the Mount of Olives. The glory cloud has now gone from the ark in the Holy of Holies, past the threshold, to the eastern gate, and now to the mountaintop. Rabbinical writings say that the glory set upon the Mount of Olives for three and a half years before returning to heaven. The rabbi said that the glory withdrew in ten stages. God was demonstrating how hard it was for him to say goodbye. He left reluctantly. He left lingeringly, hoping that the people would repent. And 600 years later, when the glory of God returns to Israel, guess what? He appears in the exact same spot where he departed. Matthew 21 tells us, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, 
at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus, and Matthew describes the triumphant entry, the day Jesus descended from the Mount of Olives into the temple through the eastern gate. Remember the expression Ezekiel used for the fiery cloud, the brightness of the Lord's glory? It's the same term that the writer of Hebrews uses to describe Jesus. God's glory will return to Jerusalem's temple the very same way it left. It will follow the very same path in the person of Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 14 says of Jesus, We beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And how long did that glory linger with us? Jesus' ministry lasted how long? Three and a half years. The same length of time the rabbis said the glory cloud rested on top of the Mount of Olives. And yet again, Israel refused to repent and believe. And thus the glory departed once more. The same path as before. Jesus ascended to heaven from what mountain? From the top of the Mount of Olives. From the exact same launching point. And yet that's not all. For one day He is coming again. The glory will return to this earth in a tangible form, in tangible presence. And where do you think Jesus will touch down when He comes again to set up His kingdom? Zechariah 14 verse 4 tells us, In that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Of course it will. He'll return to the exact same mountain where His glory ascended. Where the former glory departed. The glory will return to that exact mountain. And according to Ezekiel 44, Jesus will enter through the exact same gate where He departed. The eastern gate. From past to future, Jesus has come and gone from Jerusalem along the very same path. And He'll come again. And this gives us hope. For if God's glory has departed from your life, if compromise has grieved the Holy Spirit, and you feel as if God has withdrawn His glory from you, it can be restored. The glory will return the same way it left if you repent of your sin and if you humble your heart tonight. And in verse 24, Ezekiel's vision ends. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, that is Babylon, to those in captivity. And the vision that I had seen went up from me. And so I spoke to those in captivity of all the things the Lord had shown me. His visionary voyage returns him to Babylon. And now his job is to instruct the exiles in all that he's been shown. 